Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. That's Yola Tango. Today's guest is Helen Rosner, the writer for The New Yorker. She covers food and many other things, and she's had an illustrious career in food journalism and cookbooks, and she's got great opinions and takes. She's one of the smartest, best minds out there, so really honored to have her today as a guest. I am thrilled to have the great writer, Helen Rosner, from The New Yorker, who I've given some dumplings from Young and Dumplings. My mouth is full. Hello. Because uh, <laughs> I, 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 she just came to the airport. I got lunch, and I thought it might be a nice gesture to give her some of my favorite dumplings. But welcome. Hi. That was so nice of you to greet me with dumplings. I was really hungry. Yeah, because like you have two shots. One shot really of eating at LAX, leaving the hell that is LAX. It was just dropping off that in and out that is always packed. And I knew that you were in a rush to get here probably. I was. So this is probably the best option. Can you tell me a little bit about what you are in town for? Yeah. I'm in town um, because I'm part of the cast of Pop-Up Magazine, which is um, hard to describe and really, really magical. But basically Pop-Up Magazine is an ephemeral stage show that is basically a live magazine. So it's me and about a dozen or so other writers and documentary filmmakers and artists and musicians, and we are on tour. Like, the actress Joy Bryant is part of the show. She does an incredible piece about drumming. Um, John Jeremiah Sullivan, who is just one of my favorite writers of all time, like the guy who made me want to become a writer, does this mind-blowing piece about an early pioneer in the history of photography, which sounds boring maybe, but he makes it absolutely riveting, and he he does it in partnership with Leanne Shapton, who's just this incredible illustrator, and she does live art while he tells the story. Like, she she paints watercolors with a camera trained on her. There's a live band. It's so cool and weird and— Unlike anything I've ever done, and I love it. And what are, what, are you, what are you going to be doing? I am telling a story that I reported um, in Yuma County, Arizona, a month or two ago about iceberg lettuce. Um, I sort of started because I, I like iceberg lettuce, and it's really good, and it's underappreciated by people, I think. Which is amazing to me because so many of your viewpoints, I'm always like, wow, I agree completely. <laughs> we have a lot of the same things. Yeah. Lettuce, the best lettuce in my opinion, at least American lettuce, uh-huh. the lettuce I want to eat is iceberg. Yeah, it is. No, I completely agree. But it's sort of been like— It's been maligned, right? It it has had—and this has been for a lot of reasons. And I originally thought that my story was going to be kind of about this, right? Like the the decline of iceberg lettuce and sort of my defense of it. Um, you know, in the 60s there and 70s, there were all sorts of reasons that Americans stopped eating iceberg lettuce— Cesar Chavez and, and like, there were a lot of, like, labor issues that kind of put iceberg into the foreground and made it kind of a controversial product to buy at the store. And then also we had kind of relaxed trade agreements with Europe that brought arugula into the country. I mean, crazy sort of huge forces that led to, to iceberg declining. But what I discovered in the course of doing all of this research was that um, most of the iceberg lettuce in America is grown in Monterey, California and in Yuma County, Arizona. And Yuma County is super fascinating. It's a, a border county. It has 126 miles of border with Mexico. And it's border crossing within the county, the San Luis border crossing, is it's not the busiest border crossing. That's the one done in San Diego and Tijuana, but it is the most heavily fortified stretch of border in the U.S., and it's the most militarized border crossing. And it's the one that's held up as the model for Donald Trump's border wall. And the reason it's so aggressively protected, that particular border crossing, is because tens of thousands of Mexican workers cross every single day to work in the lettuce fields in Arizona. Um And the huge amount of security at the border there has actually hurt the lettuce farmers on the U.S. side because it's made it harder for workers to get across. And this is something we're seeing across the country if you pay attention to sort of labor and immigration and agriculture issues that, like, crops are literally rotting in the fields because farmers can't find workers to pick them. Um, And then in in a sort of a beautiful little, like, journalistic bow at the top, um, it turns out that kind of— the only vegetable that anybody seems to have any record of Donald Trump ever eating is iceberg lettuce. Like, he really loves wedge salads, which is unfortunately, like, an opinion I agree with him on. I think they're great. 
and I feel What's sad like about to, that. To, <laughs> to, to, to agree with. You also commented about uh, earlier this year, and I had privately <laughs> joked about this, that because I have inside knowledge about certain things about what he eats, I was like, oh, I think you can tell a lot about a person if they refuse to eat anything else other than like what they grew up eating. Yeah. Well done steak being one of them. For sure. I mean, I think that our relationships to food are windows into our psyche. You know, it's so visceral. It's so physical. Like your sense of control over your body is usually expressed through food, whether it's a healthy or an unhealthy way of expressing it. And, you know, if you know somebody who is a picky eater or who has a kid who's a picky eater and not just like, oh, I don't like, you know, green things, but like really like kind of pathologically picky eaters, there are deep psychological things behind it. I mean, it's a form of disordered eating. Um, and someone like Donald Trump, who kind of famously only eats in in the, the show and in, in my piece for Pop-Up, I describe his palate as mid-century masculine, right? This kind of heats steak, heats potatoes, like absolutely nothing that you wouldn't see on the menu at, you know, a Lowry's prime rib in 1974. There's something there, right? Like there's an imprint. That was the food he ate as a kid. He went to military school. Like there was, uh, there is a whole tangent we can go into about like the, the dining situation at the, the high school that he went to. But, you know, his mother's meatloaf is something that he's so obsessed with that he literally um, made it on an episode of Martha Stewart. If you ever, have you ever seen this YouTube clip? No. This is amazing. Let me know what you think. Thank you. This is perfectly cooked and you, it's, you can make it yesterday, have it today. Mm. Does it equal the best meatloaf you've ever had, Donald? It tastes just like my mother's meatloaf. Well, she used to do great. a great job. Mm -hmm. This was years and years ago. Like, I think he had threatened to run for president at that point, but everybody still thought he was just a horrible buffoon and not a horrible buffoon with his finger on the nuke button. And um, and Martha Stewart, like, tries to get them to make meatloaf. And I think this is the first time he's ever touched a raw ingredient <laughs> is in his entire life. But it's his mom's meatloaf recipe. And, like, he, his mom's meatloaf recipe is the recipe that is used to make the meatloaf that's served at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, like, there's this incredible specificity, this, like, psychological obsession with the food of his childhood. It's so interesting. And it's so in character with his other sort of short-sightednesses and unadventurousnesses as right. a human being. I think you could extrapolate a lot, particularly with a lot of the travels that I've done for the TV show and magazines or whatever, about how people eat. And I think that there is 100% a correlation if people are open to new experiences or not as to how they eat, right? And um, Or if they're conservative or they're, they cling to this some kind of orthodoxy. Um, I, what I guess I've been trying to struggle with, what I think you do with your writing is to shed light and, and, and maybe open people's opinions. But how do you do that? Like, how do you reach... More people. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know. I mean, that's such a, a good question. Um, like, wouldn't it make more sense sometimes if you just wrote for, like, Us Weekly? You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, probably. I mean, you know, I think there um, – I think – okay, I think about this a lot, right? I think that there are a lot of different ways to reach people in general. There are also a lot of different ways to approach being a writer or a storyteller or, or you know, whether you're working with words on paper or you're making a documentary series or you're writing songs – Sometimes reaching the largest volume of people is not always the goal, right? Sometimes the way and quantity in which you reach people doesn't even play into it at all. Sometimes you're working stuff out for yourself or you're interested in exploring some other issue. But, um, yeah, I mean, I could be writing for Us Weekly. I don't think Us Weekly would be really interested in the stuff that I'm yeah, I, I want to say, you know? But, like, but I meant because that's – you're right. You're, you've written for Savor. You were executive editor. Again, I don't even know what executive editor means at Eater. Yeah. And now you're at The New Yorker. You had one of the first, I would say, real food blogs, blogs, Eat Me Daily. Yeah. Oh, wow. You did your research. That but was, not in your yeah. research. This is stuff that I just read <laughs> anyway over the years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because like, there were so few people. Like, And I'll never forget when you wrote the review for our cookbook. And I was like, what the hell? Like, how, how does someone get this? <laughs> that God, you're right. That was, I feel like that was the first time. That So that was a long time ago. I feel like we should, you know. But what, were, what was going through your head when you're like, hey, I'm going to create a blog. And this may seem <laughs> to the audience today 
which is weird. Like it wasn't that long ago. But this is before the the like the where the the critical mass of like food media, yeah. which is where out today. It was a wild, wild west. Yeah, I mean, we're talking like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, at this point. Um, it was a, a an interesting moment. Okay, so the I think the first and most important thing is that I was really young, right? I was I was early in my career, and I was participating in an internet culture at that moment that was fueled largely by snark and rage, which is not inherently bad. I actually think it's in many ways really, really good. It it forces analysis and criticism, and that's a really valuable position for a writer to be coming from, especially right now when I think so many things are just cheerleading and non-critical of what's going on. Um, the cookbook reviews that I wrote for Eat Me Daily, which no longer exists, though I think the website is still up and you can read them. I, at the time, my day job was being a restaurant blogger for Grub Street, which is New York Magazine's Oh my God, I site. forgot you did that too. Yeah, I've done everything. Um, and uh, I was like very low on the totem pole. I was doing just like kind of dinky little things and as I should have been I mean Working I was I was like nobody Ozerski? you know no I was right after the Ozerski era but you know I was like the I was absolutely the lowest person in the hierarchy so I wasn't getting the juicy scoops I also didn't know restaurants you know and I still kind of don't which is weird considering the strange trajectory of my life but I wasn't out at parties I wasn't talking to chefs I was this quiet person and I read all the time and I read and I digested and I also had come into blogging from the book publishing world. I was an assistant cookbook editor for three years. I worked at Workman, um, which is this sort of legendary cookbook publishing company that also owns Artisan, which does, you know, the Thomas Keller cookbooks and just like amazing books. And I was steeped in the actual process of creating cookbooks. And then I was flung out into the world and was consuming every piece of media I possibly could and deeply loved cookbooks. And I felt really frustrated that there were no cookbook reviews. There were just kind of endorsements or listicles or like, oh my God, this great new cookbook from Tom Colicchio. And like, it probably was a great new cookbook from Tom Colicchio, but it didn't explain why. And it didn't kind of assess it against itself. It didn't take the sort of standard principles of literary criticism and apply them to cookbooks. So my friend Raphael Brion and I started Eat Me Daily. Um, we started it anonymously at first. Nobody knew who we were for like six months. And, uh, one of the things I really wanted to do is review cookbooks as if they were meaningful literary objects and functional objects. And, you know, what do you say you want to accomplish in the introduction to your book? And how does that compare to what the book actually does? And and the Momofuku cookbook, I'm not just saying this because you're sitting three feet in front of me, was unlike anything else at the time. I mean, the way that you wove your personal story in through it. I think all the time, literally a week or two ago, I pulled it off the shelf I was having a conversation with someone about the the recipe for the whole foie gras mm-hmm. in that book. I think about this all the time. The head note for that recipe, you say, don't make this fucking recipe. Like, yeah. why would you do this? We excerpted uh, French Laundry. We told people to go. Yeah. You were, like, you were like, don't make this. Like, pay someone else to make this. But also, like, don't listen to us. Go listen to these other guys. And there was something so... Like, it exploded the walls. You know, it was such an honest and direct way of presuming a different kind of authority than I think the voices in a lot of cookbooks presume. Like, you have to be an authority if you're going to speak. Like, you and I sitting here in front of microphones, like, we have to have a certain amount of authority, even if we're completely full of shit, which we probably are. Like, whenever you write anything, whenever you're putting whatever you think into someone else's head, you have to come at it from a place of some kind of authority. And so many cookbooks, especially written by chefs or, or about restaurants, are written with what I think of as God authority, where it's just like, I say it, therefore it is true. I know everything. I've done all of my research. And you and I know what goes into cookbooks. And I imagine a lot of people listening know what goes into these sorts of things where like, you don't show the seams, you know, you do fuck tons of Googling and you read every Wikipedia and you have a billion books in front of you and you have like researchers helping you out. And then you say everything as if you've known it forever. And I thought it was amazing, like genuinely phenomenal to have this moment in a cookbook where instead of taking God authority, you were taking sort of a self-possessed authority and saying, like, you know, we are confident enough and authoritative enough to say, like, go do this other thing. But it was also practical, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. No, it was it was really cool. I mean, most cooks don't know how to clean a lobe of foie, right? Yeah. Like, why would uh, a home cook want to <laughs> do that? It just does, still doesn't make any sense. I have never cleaned a lobe of foie gras at home and yeah. will never do it. Yeah. 
It's, I mean, some food's not home food. <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was so, it, um, I feel like I'm pretty far afield from your question. No, but no, like, no. But I think it's interesting because I think one of the things that this pod that I want to do, because my world is insular, but there are certain things that happen in it that I believe can be used for a touch point for something else. So while we're, we can talk inside baseball about food, blogs, you writing food, uh, cookbook reviews for Eat Me Daily anonymously for six months. <laughs> People don't understand this because they're like, oh, it's just like this nerdy world of food. But that was like extraordinarily like punk rock in the sense that so if you can imagine like th- something like this didn't exist and then all of a sudden you have an al- alternative voice talking about something where you're not supposed to talk about. And that was what was so fascinating. And you were probably at the sort of the groundswell of groundswell movement of food writing that was never really considered cool. It was something that people had to do. And you provided a n- new voice. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, no, I, no, no, I, yes. not, not anything similar you know. to um, we're with the, the Ringer Network, Bill Simmons. Do the same thing with sports. Yeah, right? I'm, I'm just the Bill Simmons of food. That's me. <laughs> but like, um, no, you know, it was it was a weird and magical moment. I, um, my career, so the wrong word. My life as a food writer or a food adjacent person has been kind of directly in parallel with the rise of, and I'm using scare quotes here, like food culture. Um, you know, I graduated from college in 2004 and. Things were—we were all babies then, you know? Like, the internet was a baby. The Food Network had barely been around for a decade and hadn't really had its breakthrough. I mean, 2004 was the year you opened Noodle Bar, right? So, like, blogs were just beginning. I mean, Eater and Grub Street didn't exist in 2004. They didn't launch till 2005 or 2006. And so I have grown with the medium, and it's been— great. I mean, it's been amazing to to watch it happen. It also means, and I realized this not too long ago when I started my job at The New Yorker, that I'm the first person to ever have every job I've ever had. <laughs> like from, with the exception of when I was a, an assistant editor, because, you know, the world of publishing is, is fairly regimented. But, you know, starting with my job at Grub Street, I was the first person to have that title. Like I've, no one has ever had my job before for whatever job I've ever had, which is horrible, but also kind of amazing. That's just, what happened? Like we helped. What, is, what does that it. feel like when you are sort of the trailblazer in that regard? Because who you ask for help? That's got to be a lonely feeling. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that we all don't have any clue what we're doing, right? I, so I definitely do. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, you you at all times exude perfect <laughs> confidence. Um, you hope to find people. I mean, I I have friends and mentors, and I also freak out alone a lot and have no clue what I'm doing and have constant feelings of inadequacy and fraudulence and then remind myself that so do everyone else. At what point did you think, wow, I'm good at this? Or do you still feel like I'm not good at this? Because here's the thing. From my perspective, I was like, oh, shit. Helen's working for The New Yorker. That's like, as far as journalism goes, as closest to the North Star you can get. Yeah, it is. I That was a moment of a lot of reckoning. I I think I'm really good at my job. I'm going to be like, you know, I know that this is not cool to, no, it's okay just to be come out and it. say it. Yeah. Like, I'm really good at what I do. I am not always really good at what I do, and I make lots of mistakes, and I have a lot of personal qualities that just fuck me at every turn. But, like, and I've also been super lucky, and there's, like, a million kind of caveats and circumstances. But, like, I work really hard, and I'm good at what I do. And, of course, I, you know, you dream of getting a job at The New Yorker, and I'm I'm blown away that I work there, and I still kind of can't say it in a cool way like when people ask where I work I like giggle a little and I feel kind of awkward and it's like saying you're you know dating Channing Tatum or something like that <laughs> oh it's like oh yeah no my boyfriend like who like I, oh I went to school in Boston it's like the Harvard move right. I'm like oh I'm a writer because I feel weird but um I think I'm good at what I do I don't think I'm I think, the you're, best, I think you're great and at I think what I you can do. get better but you but, still feel like man like I'm, I'm 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 fooling everyone still. Sometimes, yeah. I'm also like really bad at the actual process of writing. Like I'm truly awful at sitting down in front of a computer and getting the words out from my brain into the empty page. And I play all sorts of tricks on myself to pretend I'm not writing. Like I I went through a, f- a phase for a while when I wrote all of, every story I wrote. I would write in a Gmail draft, like and not even a popped out Gmail draft, but like the one in the lower right of your screen, um, and. 
I went through a phase that I'm still kind of in where I write everything in the notes app on my iPhone. Like it's all thumb writing. And uh, <laughs> I also like, I have this theory about Twitter. So I'm obsessed with Twitter and I tweet probably too much. And I have but no. But it's very entertaining. So Thank if you, you. haven't <laughs> followed Helen's Twitter account, it is at Helen Rosner. No, it's Hells. H-E-L-S. Oh, that's yeah. right. How did you get that? Um, I, um, in the early days of Twitter, flirted with someone who worked at Twitter and he kicked someone off their account and gave it to me. That's at hells. <laughs> at hells.com. Not dot com, just at hells. Just at hells. But HLS. It's it's very, very uh entertaining. I well, it's really fun and I love Twitter and I um all of my writer's block that exists with actual writing doesn't exist on Twitter. So I made a fake Twitter account that like nobody follows and follows nobody that's locked, where I tweet the stories I'm supposed to be writing, like in tweet form in hopes of bypassing whatever is happening in my brain but like it doesn't work I, anyway you know it's, it's you should really talk about that process <laughs> another day I bet you it's fascinating it's just it's hard to get it out I know exactly what I want to say and I love talking to people and doing research but but like I find it funny where I'm hearing this from my perspective and I'm like you're a great writer you're a prolific writer and you're like ah. Oh, it's so hard for me to write. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Well, I mean, should we but turn I'm this sure on you? Like, you're a great chef and restaurateur. You're a prolific restaurateur. And, no, I have you know. the, as the same insecurities I had at the age of 15. You know? Yeah. Those don't change. Yeah. And that's why it's like sort of cathartic for me just to talk about it. It's like, oh, like I can commiserate in that misery that you go through. But in some way, I can see my own reflection in you too. Or I'm like, wait, like. This is this is sort of funny, but I also understand the pain in doing it. Sure. And it's weird to say that you're good at something, too, because now you have objective proof that you work at The New Yorker. Very <laughs> few people will ever get that job. And what that represents is, like, that's amazing validation for you. It has to be. It is. It is. And it's, it's validation of the work, but it's not validation of the process because the process is like a fucking vortex of misery. Um so I, before I worked at The New Yorker, when I was at Eater, a lot of my job was being an editor, not a writer. This is actually the first job I've had in a really, really long time where all I do is write. Um, before you, can you explain the difference yes. between writing and editing? Because yeah. I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> have no idea. They know the words, but they don't know the difference. Well, it's also become a little bit blurred because in internet culture, being an editor at a website often means you are a writer, like the, the sort of mastheads. Um, a masthead is the list of the people who work at the place. Um, you know, if you think about a website like The Ringer, for example, um, it'll say like associate editor so-and-so, and that usually is code for writer, right? So ed editor means writer at a lot of websites. Um, I, when I worked at Eater, was an editor editor, which meant that I assigned stories to freelancers or to my coworkers, and I got their copy in, and I worked with them to make the copy better. And it, it's a it's a shaping job. Um, it's not quite management. It's a it's really sort of like a creative collaboration slash being a parent. And and the thing that I was going to say, which is that a huge portion of being an editor was being a therapist to my writers. Um, sometimes in really significant ways like there was one writer I went over to his house and like we were working on a story where he had this moment it was about his father and and his relationship to his father is expressed through restaurants and there was this moment in the story where his father dies and um we you know sat in his living room and we both like sobbed I mean you work through the shit and um and there are other times when I'm basically a glorified spell checker but um but I got really gratified by working with writers on their process of writing, like helping them figure out what was standing in their way, which is usually some kind of psychological thing, whether it's just fear of failure in general or, you know, you don't want to directly address this issue or, like, you're going to be writing a story about, you know, factory poultry production and you think it's going to be super straightforward, but for some reason you can't bring yourself to dig in on this particular facet of the story. And it's my job to kind of say, hey, no, like, I need you to pay more attention to the way that this has health health effects on workers' lives. And if you're pushing back as a writer, one of my jobs, if I'm doing my job right, is to figure out if you're pushing back because you're an asshole or if you're pushing back because you really don't think it's part of the story or if you're pushing back because for some reason you don't feel capable of approaching that subject, whether it's something related to your personal life or your sense of your expertise. It's a lot of reading other people. Um, 
And I loved that. And I have an editor now who's really great at working with me in that way. And I love it. And she tolerates my insanity and my crazy processes and my constant doubt and self-loathing. I think every single story I file to her, like the when it, file means turn in, um, is uh, like the, the note on top of the, the shared Google Doc is like, this is a mess. It's horrible. I'm sorry. It's okay if you need to fire me. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's you're a mess. Everything is a mess. I don't understand people who, who can do this without being a mess. And do you, now that you're in the position of being a writer again, are you like, wow, this is so much less responsibility? Yes and no. I'm responsible for the stories that I tell. It's this very heavy thing. Um, as, when I was when I was an editor, I felt that my primary responsibility was to my readers, and my secondary responsibility was to my writer, and this my tertiary responsibility was to the sort of story itself um, and the subjects of the story. Um, and now I feel really, really strongly that it's very important to me that I say exactly what I want my readers to hear. I mean, I, and I believe very genuinely that it doesn't matter what you say. It matters what people hear. So it's your job to make sure that there is as little ambiguity between those two things as possible. Um, and I write about some things that are fluffy, but I also write about really heavy things. I mean, especially right now, I've been writing a lot about things like sexual harassment and you know, the moral responsibilities of the people who are covering the restaurant world and these topics that are very nuanced and complicated and also very sensitive. And I don't want to misrepresent anybody's story. Right. So, Helen, can you talk a little bit about the Me Too movement and the stuff you've covered in the culinary world and how that's fundamentally altered the landscape in the, in the, in the restaurant universe? And a lot has come out. Um, a lot. Where do we go next? I don't know. This is the big question. Um, there are two tracks to my answer to this. My first answer, which is my real answer, is that I'm not ready for a next. And I think that, like, we shouldn't be ready to move to whatever the next phase is. Like, this is such a weird and complicated thing in so many ways. And the most important part of all of this, I think, to understand as observers, which itself is something I don't always feel comfortable with because we're also part of it. But, like, let's pretend for a minute that we can kind of observe the landscape. This isn't something that's limited to restaurants, but restaurants are such fertile ground for this kind of informality and intimacy and intensity that gives rise to people feeling like they have license to cross certain boundaries. And so I don't know if I'm ready to move on to phase two, whatever phase two is, because I don't think that— it has been clearly articulated yet enough in a loud and public and comprehensive way that this is not Mario Batali and Mike Isabella and John Besh and Charlie Hallowell are bad dudes and let's keep an eye out for any others. It's like those were the guys whose public profiles and business footprints were large enough to justify significant newsroom investment from the newspapers that cover their areas in order to collect these stories and vet them and present them to the world. So so this narrative has been limited by the budgets of newsrooms, right? Like it, it is by necessity a story that's being told one restaurant or one harasser at a time. But the truth is that it's endemic and epidemic to the restaurant world, but also not endemic to it. That's what I was trying to say. It's in almost every restaurant, but it's also in almost every workplace and in almost every home and in almost every social environment. I mean— this is effectively a referendum on the toxicity of patriarchy, you know? And um, and I don't know if I'm ready to say, well, what happens next? Because I don't think we've sufficiently acknowledged as a culture that this is like cancer in the bone. I mean, there was this profile of Mario Batali in the, in the Times a couple of weeks ago about what he's been doing since he stepped away from his restaurants and sort of entered the, I don't know, the penalty box. And um, he's thinking about his comeback. And there was a huge backlash to this article. People were so mad. I was super mad. I, um, Because the idea of a comeback feels wrong. Mm -hmm. But it is a real question, right? Like, it's, what do you do? You can't just, like, you know, What's the threshold for, the, for, the, for penance? Yeah. 
right? What what needs to be done? And I, I don't know if you can answer the question in the middle. I think you need to define it like a logical problem, right? Like look, define it on the extremes. And it's hard for me to talk about this stuff because when it all went down, it was like, where are all the male chefs? And it's hard because I'm friends with a lot of these people. And is it an indictment of me? And, and then I was like, could I have done anything differently? It's a really hard question and it deserves to be scrutinized. And yeah. I don't know how to make a better dialogue because I don't think you can answer anything until we can talk about it openly. You know, I, I totally agree with that. I think um, there are a lot of elements to the sort of individual way that this has played out. I think, you know, you look at someone like Batali, who, you know, I was friendly with him. I haven't talked to him since this happened and since I've written about him extensively. But, you know, like it hit me in the heart. I felt like my a rug had been pulled out from under me. Like we weren't, you know, best friends. It's not like we were hanging out, but we had a good relationship. And I took it really personally. I took it really hard. I wrote about that actually in The New Yorker. And um, I think that the way that we exist as people in the world and the way we articulate our power over other people has been bred into us through generations to be expressed in certain ways. And there are times when it's like, okay, and it's fine, and it's everyone hanging out and having fun. And there are times when you can take a step back from it and you can say, okay, the pervasiveness of this culture, the way that this is, the way that we talk to each other, the way that we behave, the things that we exclude or excuse has led to the wholesale disenfranchisement or exclusion of a group of people that we care about. So I've been angry about sexual harassment in restaurants since I was working in restaurants as a teenager and I was aware of it. I mean, look, half of Americans have all have worked in a food service at some point in their lives. And so this is not a surprise to anyone that restaurants are like hotbeds of discomfort. But the thing that is new is the chastisement. And I feel like this is kind of maybe what Can you're you getting at. Can you explain that for me? Chastisement. Well, it wasn't, you didn't get in trouble for it kind of culturally, right? It, th- this was the, this is where we get into such tricky stuff. And But <sighs> harassment is illegal, right? Sexual assault is illegal. Like we're talking about crimes, right? It's not just a moral issue. Like, I think it should be sufficient for it to be a moral issue, but for a lot of people, they're like, well, like, whatever, like, where's the due process? Like, okay, like, here's the due process. It's literally illegal, right? Like, there are protections and laws in place that say, like, you cannot discriminate against somebody for their sex or their gender. You cannot make sexual remarks in a workplace. There are things that are designed to protect power imbalances. And they were not really enforced. And they're still probably not enforced in virtually any environment. But a critical mass happened. And but what does it say about culture? That Our culture fucked. that allows it to happen. Our culture is terrible. Our culture is horrible. I mean, I don't know. It's We live in a white supremacist patriarchal society. And all of a sudden, the people who are not— Like, why did it take this movement to all <laughs> of a sudden know. have people to talk about it? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. not that it wasn't like, no, I remember Charlotte Druckmann talking about this all the time and no one gave her the soapbox that yep. she wanted yep. or deserved. It's totally and now true. everyone wants to talk about it. And that's what I'm like, wait a second here. Well, I think that's why the, the Harvey Weinstein stories that the Times and the New Yorker dropped were so extraordinary. It wasn't just that these were accounts of sexual harassment, um, though I think regardless of who the players in that set of extraordinary reporting um, had been, they would have been horrifying pieces. The victims were celebrities. We had a vested interest in the well-being and the happiness of the people who were the targets of this predator. And suddenly, in a way, this is beautiful. I mean, like America's cult of celebrity has also been toxic for so long, but, but this amazing synergy happened between our indifference to sexual predation and our intense emotional investment in celebrities and beautiful people. And suddenly, instead of sympathizing with the predator, which is what happens all the time when these stories are reported, and not just by men. I mean, I think that there, everybody wants to redeem the rapist, you know? Um, we were We were 
pre-trained to sympathize with the people who were on the other end. So on a massive cultural scale, everybody had a perspective shift. And I think a lot of women were like, I have already been here. Like, welcome the fuck to our side, dudes. But suddenly, like, men understood the anger from the other side. And they were like, why are you doing this? And that was such a momentum I see things differently else. than I couldn't have seen before. Yeah. Because I've been forcing myself to understand and go through the process. And part of me is like, okay, I see it now. And I'm thankful that I see it. But like, was there any other way for me to get to this point? Maybe, but I don't know. Right now, we have an imperfect accounting of this as a phenomenon, right? Like we have a handful of guys who are extremely high profile and whose positions as the target of accusations is incredibly high profile. And then there are tens of thousands of other restaurant owners and chefs and restaurant workers who are doing similar things all the time and are not getting called out in the pages of the Washington Post, the New York Times. Um, What so let's get back to this original question of what happens, right? Like people are stepping away from their restaurant groups. This is the thing they're saying. So they're stepping out of day-to-day operations, um, which is damage control. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to a, a, a bunch of folks who are involved in these restaurant groups, and they're saying that their restaurants are taking the hit. I mean, there are some people who have been – I'm trying to avoid using names here, but, like, you know, there are some restaurant groups that have – high-profile Me Too targets at the top who are still full every night, right? Like, their restaurants are doing totally fine. Their customers don't care. And there are others that are, like, really, really hurting. So there is the whole, like, shit, we have to save the business move. So that's the we're stepping away. Like, you're not going to be the face of the thing anymore. But then there's, like, the guy himself, right? So I don't know. Do I feel like you're legally entitled to, like, be famous? No, right? Like, we— We knock people out of their positions of fame all the time for all sorts of stupid things, you know? Like, people are at the top of the world, and then, like, we decide their hair is the wrong color, or, like, they married the wrong person, or they said something dumb when they were on, like, The Tonight Show, and your fame collapses. So I think that, hey, like, for a really long time, you sexually harassed a lot of people is a decent reason to lose fame. Um, There's very little direct financial punishment. The one thing that I haven't seen that I'm dying for, like fucking dying for. I hope that high-profile chefs are listening to this. I hope you will tell your friends. Like, I don't know how to say this any louder. Nobody has made a giant-ass donation to some kind of organization that will help stop this. Like, if Mario Batali popped up tomorrow, everyone would want to shout him down. But if the thing that he had to say was, I'm Mario Batali. I'm a zillionaire. I'm donating $10 million mm-hmm. to some anti-harassment organization or a domestic abuse organization or to, like, fund every single woman who wants to go to culinary school for the next 10 years, which would be like a blip on his net worth, that would go farther than literally anything towards his resurrection. Like like saying, I have profited for years on something that allowed this behavior to continue, and I'm going to take some of those profits and redirect them towards making things right. Like, why hasn't anybody fucking done that yet? Now they know. To do it. It's so obvious, right? I don't know. I mean, the thing I keep thinking about is um, in South Africa after apartheid, they had these truth and reconciliation committees, truth and reconciliation commissions, um, which, I mean, there have been amazing books and and movies and documentaries made about this. But um, basically, you know, white people gave testimony to the acts that they had committed against non-white people in South Africa, like mostly black, but, you know, of all sort of races and and South Africa has a complicated racial vocabulary. But um, I think that that forcing the confrontation of your past is really important with this kind of sea change, you know? Like, if you look at at the fall of apartheid in South Africa, like, one day it was legal to be racist and the next day it was illegal to Mm -hmm. be racist. I mean, that is theoretically beautiful, but in practice is almost impossible to enforce unless you build in these on-ramps to, sh- to shift who you are as a person. Um, so, you know, up until last October, it was okay 
to be a sexist dick in a kitchen. And then suddenly the next day it wasn't. And every newspaper and magazine and journalist in the country was breathing down every chef's neck and looking for something. Um, so how do you move forward? I, I think, I think, I don't know who organizes this. Like there's no government of food, but like, I think that the thing to do is to say, I'm going to take an honest accounting of who I was, because if I take an honest accounting of who I was, then I have an honest accounting of who I am now and how I go forward. But there's no government of South Africa, like, overseeing the restaurant industry, right? Like, there's no—the Beard Foundation couldn't do this. I mean, I've been I've been uh, trying to avoid using the phrase the restaurant industry yeah. as, like, my tiny little protest against kind of all of this, because— we talk about it like it's this holistic collective, and it's so not. It's tens of thousands of standalone one-on-one businesses and then some gigantic chains with massive buying power. And a lot of them, and I've seen this, don't know what's right or wrong, even though they're trusting their moral compass to make it right. And I'm not justifying it. It's me just trying to empathize and make the situation better and at the very minimum, find a way to talk about it. Because everyone is so fucking scared to talk about it. Yeah. And I think everything should be as fair as humanly possible. That's just who I am as a person. And it's really hard to say that I'm struggling to find the best way to talk about it does not mean that I'm anti-equality in the workforce. And mistakes get made. Yeah. And to me, it's an issue about culture and society at large. And, I mean, I always think about David Foster Waller's graduation speech at Kenyon when he's talking about challenging your default setting. And so much of that right now I feel like people could use or, like, to more go more esoteric. Like, I know you studied philosophy. It was, like, Richard Rorty and his usefulness of truth, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> If it's not really useful, then what's the fucking point, right, in terms of even empirical evidence? And I find myself continuously referring to something like that or of those two, you know, titan figures about, like, we're talking about something, but if it's not useful to make things better, then what's the point? But it can only be useful if we can acknowledge that we've made a mistake. And I have to just, like, explain this because it's just, like, maybe I think it can— tie into what we're talking about on, on the ugly delicious show which you wrote about and the new yorker i said something and i've got a lot of criticism for it we're saying hey like uh, when david simon basically like crushed me for talking crap about cultural appropriation if a white kid makes kimchi right and i said that makes me mad that is my default setting i can't help like to feel if i see because we were in new orleans the night before and we went to a restaurant a very like cool traditional restaurant and there was like a flight of kimchi and I was like fuck this and he was like why and I was like because like not here and he asked me what would be fine when would you find that acceptable what's the threshold for me to accept someone else that's not my culture to make kimchi properly and I was like well they would have to be a student they would have to educate others they'd have to push it forward they would have to like make it meaningful in a way that like no one else has done before. And after it was edited, after I saw about it and I'm thinking about this all the time, because I'm always pushing myself to see different viewpoints, to beat the shit out of myself so I can be better. And there's no way I would have gotten to this viewpoint. I'm like, fuck, I'm such an idiot. Because if that's the threshold for acceptance of a white person making kimchi, the worst thing I can possibly say is, what my default setting is, fuck you, you can't make this. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I need to encourage them. I need to do something I don't want to do. Well, I think that the more interesting thing in that, though that's very interesting, (laughs) is um, if I can psychologically analyze you for a second. And I, I felt like I could see this watching Ugly Delicious. You only have this reaction to Korean food. Yeah. You don't have this to other things. And, that's okay because it's you and it's your identity. But what it reminds me of is something that's really important. And I don't want to sound like I am this like champion who lives my life flawlessly. Like I work on this stuff all the time, but we are never going to be perfectly rational beings, right? Like the myth of, of the meritocracy is 
that we can assess things perfectly, that we can actually say, like, merit is absolute and I can perceive it, right? Like, the, there's no such thing as true rationality in human behavior or human perception. And so the only thing we can do is accept that there are ways in which we are irrational, right? Like, mm. so for you to, like, look at that situation and say, listen, I have this reaction to kimchi, but I like maybe you don't have quite as extreme a reaction to a white person making Mexican food, right? I don't. Or as extreme a reaction to a white person who's from, you know, southern Italy making Scandinavian food or whatever it might be. Um, I think it's okay to be inconsistent. I think it's human and real. Like we have a deep and irrational and illogical emotional connections to things and we have meaningful reactions to them and it's what makes us people instead of robots. So – it's okay to have a gut reaction of being like, hey, fuck you. But then the thing that's right, which is what you did, is to examine why you said it. So, and this does, I mean, this all connects. It's such a sort of beautiful lateral example to this. Like, we can't have our goal be perfection. Like, mm -hmm. we can't have our goal, and I don't mean that as, that as an excuse to fail, because it's not. It's we can't fail. Failure is bullshit. Nobody should fail. What we should do is create a goal that is real and that allows us to be right. humans within it. And that's why I feel like maybe you're saying the same thing. You're articulating better because I always say certain sentences that are always stupid. <laughs> so right? do I. But uh, <laughs> part of it is having time to reflect upon your actions, number one. And two, like being allowed to have a dialogue and I feel like we are not having that right now. Yeah, that's we are. we are, but but it's there are conversations that are happening in the media and there are conversations that are happening in private rooms and there's stuff happening kind of in the middle at like dumb conferences that don't really go anywhere. But like I think that I think we can all agree we everyone wants everything to be better yes. for everyone. But I think like you and me having this conversation is helpful in a certain way, but, like, the real conversation that I need to have to become better, the real conversation you need to have to become better, and all of these folks, like, these guys who've been knocked off pedestals with heavily, like, investigated accusations and, like, people who are sitting around scared if it's going to happen to them next, like, everybody, these are conversations you have with, like, your best friend or your therapist or your spouse or, like, someone who has a vested an inherent interest, not necessarily in moving the industry forward or the world forward, but like you as a human being, right? Like these are seeds that live inside of us. I feel like I'm getting very like motivational poster right now, but I hope that there are people who just like hear some smart thing that you just said here and had like their awakening and are now just like in, right? They're like, oh, fuck, like I discard the person I was and going forward I see the world. But I think it's far more likely that like you have a long night with a bunch of beers and one of your like close friends and you can say the things that you're kind of scared to say and your friend is a good enough person and loves you enough to hear what you're saying with generosity and also to help guide you to a better place. One can hope. Oh, man. Did you ever think that it would be like this? Like when you started writing? Like no. any any career advice for aspiring food journalists? Like like when a young cook tells me like, hey, I want to – or someone that just says, I don't even cook yet. I want to become a cook. I'm like, don't. Yeah. You'll, yes. Do I you, mean, don't. Do because... you tell people, hey, you can – what's your – like you can have a great quality of life. Like I know the truth, but do you want to explain? If you win, it's awesome. But it is really hard to win. Why is it so hard? It's a narrow playing field and there's not a lot of money. Um, so why do it? I don't know. I really love doing it. Here's my advice to people. I don't think that you should become a food writer. I think you should just become a writer. Um, I think there was once a time when the food beat was its own really discreet and obvious thing. And you covered it and you knew who the chefs were and you knew what the cookbooks were and you did all this stuff. And it's not like that anymore. Um, food is no longer like this marginal thing in the cultural landscape. It is this huge machine, and it's also a machine that's like in 
constant state of redefinition and it has no idea what it is and like we don't know what we're doing in terms of like the restaurant's impact on the cultural landscape and like what really does a Bon App cover do to move the needle in the culinary conversation. I mean, there are all these huge unknowns. Um, so don't be a food writer because there's no such thing as a food writer. There's writers. Like be a really good journalist. Be a really good thinker. Be a person who wants to know how all of the threads in the world connect to all of the other threads. And every so often, one of the threads that you're going to focus on will have something to do with the restaurant. It's good advice. Yeah. I don't know. I mean. I think you do know. I I mean, listen, I, I wanted to bring you on board because we could talk about some yeah. meaty, meaty things. And I know you have interesting, very well-informed takes on things. I try. And it's a very diverse career you've had. Yeah. And I'm so curious to understand the other parts of my industry that I'm not the center of. And this is a perfect example. So when I heard you're in town, I was like, hey, this is, let's, let's, let's talk, you know? I'm so happy that you had me in. This um, has been so fun. We could talk. I mean, I'm probably, I'm sure we'll talk <laughs> offline or on another pod, or maybe I'll do a micro pod about your, your take on umami and MSG. Oh God, it's so good. It Why the, doesn't the everybody have MSG in their kitchen? It was just, it warmed my heart. To Thank see you. that you wrote that, I was like, oh. Thank you. It was the best. Thank and you. if you haven't read her article, what was the title of it? MSG Convert Visits the High Church of Umami. That's right. I, I think, think that's it. Yeah. That was it. And uh, it's online on the, on the New Yorker. Yeah. And uh, if you run into your, your paywall on the New Yorker, it's definitely just. Use incognito mode. <laughs> Nobody knows. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Thank this you was for super fun. Us up. Thank you, Helen, for joining us today on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I've learned so much today, and uh, we'll have you back soon. And to the listeners, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and we'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs>